Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, the United Ireland podcast companion series, talking to brilliant journalists and writers about the stories that matter to them. On this episode, we're expanding the meaning of journalist and even a writer, I guess, and speaking to Sarah Shulman about her career and her life, really, as a historian, a nonfiction writer, a novelist, a playwright, and her latest book, The Phenomenal Let the Record Show, a political history of Act Up New York, 1987 to 1993. Sarah Shulman is a hugely influential writer, activist, thinker, uh, whose writing work and point of view is held in, in extraordinarily high esteem within the global LGBTQ plus community and, of course, beyond that, too. Um, she has written a dozen novels, um, one of which People in Trouble we might talk about, which essentially was repurposed uh, without permission, I might add, as some of the basis for the musical Rent. Her seven nonfiction works include... Uh, this latest tome on ACT UP New York, also stagestruck, um, theatre aids in the marketing of Gay America, hugely influential, the gentrification of the mind, witness to a lost imagination, the remarkable conflict is not abuse, overstating harm, community responsibility and the duty of repair. The very, very helpful ties that bind familial homophobia and its consequences and more. She has written multiple plays, many of which have been produced, and films, including the hilarious uh, sex comedy Mommy is Coming, which previously showed at the Gays Dublin International LGBTQ plus film festival and uh, co-produced the essential documentary United in Anger, a history of ACT UP. She also co-founded the direct action group, The Lesbian Avengers, of which there was a Dublin chapter and is active in the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. The breadth of her work, as you can probably tell, I'm only kind of grazing it really um, is pretty astonishing. Her latest book, which we'll discuss on this episode, uh, Let the Record Show, has been called a masterpiece by the New York Times and stands as a kind of new monument to the era, the activism and those involved in a struggle uh, and in a context that is far from over or finished. For me, uh, her work is characterized by the kind of incredible clarity many writers yearn to achieve um, I was speaking to a writer recently and, and mentioned that you would be um, on this podcast. And he said, you know, the thing with Sarah Shulman is she just says, here it is. So I suppose that's <laughs> one way of uh, of summarizing your work in a very condensed way. So um, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. So great to be here. Now we Last always time we saw each other. It was at a pro-Palestine demonstration in New York City. That's yes, right. it was <laughs> followed followed by a great sandwich, uh, if I, if I uh, recall. Yes, that's right. Um, now we always begin byline by asking people where they grew up and when the craft of writing came calling. Well, I was born on Tenth Street and I live on Ninth Street, so very provincial New Yorker here. Um, let's see, so. You know, I was born in 1958, 
And my, I come from a Holocaust family and I was given the diary of Anne Frank when I was very young. And I think like for many girls of my generation, it started me writing a diary. Uh, I think that there's a direct connection generationally there. No one has actually looked into that. But so at age six, I wrote, when I grow up, I will write books. So it's been a lifelong understanding. And were, did you, were you writing kind of stories or things like that as a, as a teenager or were you writing articles or when could you pinpoint? Well, let's see. I wrote a history of baseball without doing any research. So I made everything <laughs> up. I wrote a musical. I wrote a Hanukkah plays that my brother and sister had to put on. I mean, I did every starting at the beginning. I was multidisciplined. Um, but all in a very undisciplined way. And uh, I wrote a newspaper about my family. You know, it's all, it was all there from the beginning. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, we'll, we'll kind of go back and forth a little bit, but um, how, like this, this book is, is, is it, it took me, I have to say, it took me a couple of weeks to read on and off primarily because I kept stopping and, and thinking and, and underlying things and wondering how they could be brought into my own life or how they um, reveal things about other moments in history or eras or movements. Um, you have been at the coalface of um, ACT UP and I suppose, you know, b- becoming one of the, the main AIDS historians, I guess, globally on a practical level, how long did this take? It feels like the, the collage or culmination of, of at least a couple of decades work, maybe. Well, it's complicated because, you know, AIDS is not my main subject. And this is something that I've had a lifelong involvement with simply because of the accident of history. So in the 1979, I was a reporter in these series of sort of underground gay and feminist newspapers that existed in every city um, where the journalists did not get paid. And we were out there trying to cover our community. And that's what I was doing when AIDS was first identified, which is 1981, the pattern of virus. Um, So I covered it for a number of of, of queer papers you know, on all different kinds of levels, pediatric AIDS, which was very big in New York at the time, a lot of people were born HIV positive. I covered the closing of the bathhouses. So by the time ACT UP started in March of 1987, I'd already been writing about AIDS for about five years. Then I was in ACT UP, I left in about 92 or 93. 96 is the protease inhibitors. So those are the good drugs first come in. 99 is the internet revolution. And this kind of left act up in the dust because it was a pre-internet movement. So there was no YouTube and nothing, no email and no nothing. And so none of our materials were digitized. So there was a period in like 99 or 2000 where if you Googled act up, you would find nothing. Then in 2001, which was then called the 20th anniversary of AIDS, but we now know it's the 20th anniversary of identifying AIDS. Um, I was listening to a, something on the radio and the guy was said, uh, well, first America had trouble with people with AIDS, but then they came around. And I just thought, oh, no, 
you know, this is going to be this fake story about the benevolence of the dominant group and the natural progress and all of that. And, you know, my collaborator, Jim Hubbard, and I have always felt very responsible to our dead friends. It's very a Jewishy thing that we have. We're both the same post-Holocaust generation. And we really felt that it was our responsibility that we, we needed to show that actually that is not true that America came around and actually thousands of people fought until the day they died to force the country to change against its will. So in 2001, we got funding from the Ford Foundation, Irvashi Vad, who's one of the great leaders of the American movement, was there at the time. And we started doing the ACT UP Oral History Project. So for the next 18 years, we interviewed 188 surviving members of ACT UP. And we put it all on our website, which is actuporalhistory.org. And we've had over 14 million hits on that website. And Jim collected about 2,000 hours of archival video footage, and we made everything available open access at the New York Public Library. But this weird kind of history started to emerge. Um, you know, at first there was no history at all. And then these kind of fakey stories that attributed the successes of this incredibly complex movement to a handful of people. And it's is a very American thing, you know, it's the John Wayne, the white guy on the horse comes in at the last minute and saves everybody, uh, the heroic individual. And it was just driving us crazy. We couldn't live with it. Jim did make a film in 2012 called United in Anger, which is available for free on YouTube. And we literally took the film around the world. I mean, we showed it in India, in Russia, right after the anti-gay laws were passed, in Lebanon and Palestine and Brazil. Um, but we were competing with more high profile messages that were reducing the successes to five people or to six people. And not only is that historically not accurate, but it's also impossible because at least in the United States, change is made only through coalition and five individuals cannot create a paradigm shift in the United States. So, Considering that we're now living in a time where everything's falling apart and most people in America want change unless they're crazy anti-vax or Christians or whatever, but most sane people want change. It's really important to look at the movements that have been able to accomplish something and understand how they did it. And getting access to activist history is very, very difficult because first of all, successful movements like ACT UP don't theorize themselves. So there's not they didn't leave explanations of how they succeeded. But also the mainstream coverage of these movements is so distorted that you can't figure it out. So the whole thing just felt like a state of emergency. And so I had to do the book, which meant re-reading all of the interviews I had already conducted over the past two decades. And that took about three more years to cohere it. Now, when I started writing the book, I realized at the beginning that it could not be chronological because it wouldn't be accurate. Because the reason, one of the reasons that the movement was so effective was that so many different things happened at the same time. There was a simultaneity of response. Um, and so it had to be reflected in the structure of the book. Now, fortunately, I have a lot of experience with formal invention. I've written a lot of books and they're all different. So I've written like 
conventional middle mid-list literary realism, but I've also done genre work and I've done a lot of experimental novels and futuristic work and all this stuff. So I had a lot of skill at formal approaches. And I always have felt that the form should reflect the content, not the other way around. So I cohered significant tropes that I thought would really convey to the modern reader how these successes were achieved. Um, and I think it works because it is a 760 page book about AIDS. I mean, it's not like something that you think a lot of people would want to buy, but they have been buying it. And we've, we've at the end of the second printing now in the hardcover and the paperbacks coming out in the spring. So it's turned out to be something that people can read and feel comfortable with. Mm. One of the um, ways that you kind of enter the movement at the outset of the book, which I find really, really fascinating, is how you try and deduce what people's motivations were for getting involved. And um, I think that like that speaks to a, 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 mm, an insecurity maybe that that sometimes people involved in trying to affect change have that they get frustrated or even fatalistic that quote unquote, more people aren't coming aboard, but you're not necessarily, well, first of all, you're not necessarily sure that matters. And second of all, the thing that seemed to characterize people was that they wouldn't be, they just were natural non bystanders, I suppose. So I want to pull those two things out. Like, first of all, the types of people who populated ACT UP and what their motivation was, I suppose. And then the other part that is quite hopeful that actually you don't need, necessarily need, you know, half a million people from the get-go to make get something over the line. Yeah, so ACT UP was very, very effective. Let's just start with what they accomplished so people know what we're talking about. Uh, so first of all, you know, in the early 80s when AIDS was first identified, in the United States, gay people had no rights whatsoever. Gay sex was illegal. It wasn't even overturned until 2003, the sodomy laws. In New York City, there was no protection for job discrimination or housing. You could be kicked out of a restaurant for being gay. Familial homophobia was a virulent cultural norm and violence against gay people which was called gay bashing, was like a form of entertainment for straight people and there was no recourse. So it was a highly oppressed group that then found themselves facing a terminal disease for which there were no treatments. So this was a, a group that, uh, uh, the people with AIDS were people who really had no rights. And that's what we're starting with. In six years, they managed to force pharma and the government to change the way they researched treatments in a, in a manner that got pharmaceutical companies a smaller market share, but actually addressed the infections that people with AIDS were dying of. They got the government to make experimental drugs available even if they hadn't been fully approved. That was very significant. They act up force the government to change the definition of AIDS so that women with AIDS could qualify for benefits and get into experimental drug trials. This is probably act up's most far reaching success because today every woman with HIV in the world is who gets medication is taking a medicine that was tested on women. And that was not true at the time. 
they made needle exchange legal in New York City, which changed the epidemic for IV drug users. And at a time before the pre-sex scandal, when the Catholic Church was extremely powerful in New York, and in fact, the cardinal was more powerful than the mayor, the church tried to stop condoms from being distributed in the public schools and act up disrupted mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral in December 1989 and stopped the church from uh, restricting condom distribution. And most importantly, ACT UP changed the way that queer people and people with AIDS felt about themselves and the ways that we were seen around the world. So these are very significant and concrete victories. So one of my questions going into this was, who are these people that were able to do this? You know, what do they have in common? And it took years of asking questions to try to understand what they had in common, because when you looked at them, they came from all different kinds of backgrounds, they, some of them were very politically experienced, but many had never been politically active before. And what we finally kind of realized is that it was more like a type of person than in a particular experience that they shared. That it was a kind of person who, given a historic cataclysm, could not be a bystander. And the thing about ACT UP was that they were very effective. So size-wise, you know, the Monday night meetings would have between three and 700 people, which is a lot for a meeting, but it's not a lot for a movement. And their largest action was 7,000 people, which is not that much. But people in ACT UP were very, very effective. Now, one of the reasons was that um, ACT UP was very influenced by the feminist women's health movement that had preceded it. And there were a number of individuals from that movement who came to ACT UP and literally through a kind of um, teach-in process brought the concept of patient-centered politics. So people with AIDS were the experts in ACT UP and determined how the organization functioned. And people with AIDS had no treatments at the time and they were fighting against the clock their lives were at stake. So there was not time for theoretical debate. There was not time for bureaucratic bullshit. If it, you know, so ACT UP functioned on a radical democracy structure. You did not have to have agreement to go forward. There was a one line uh, statement of unity, the bottom line of the politics of the group, which was direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And that was direct action as opposed to social service provision. So if you were doing direct action to end the AIDS crisis, basically you could do it. And if you had an idea that I didn't like, we would fight about it because it was this was pre-gentrification New York culture and everybody said what they thought and you know it was very confrontational. But in the end, if you wanted to do something and I didn't like it, I just wouldn't do it. But I didn't try to stop you from doing it. And because of this radical democracy, non-consensus based structure, many, many, many kinds of campaigns were going on at the same time, using different kinds of approaches in different parts, social milieu, using different aesthetics. And it was this simultaneity that really gave the organization power beyond its numbers. Yeah, I think Irish listeners will really see the correlations between the repeal movement and the um, the way that ACT UP act up fronted functioned, although I suppose the repeal movement was was less um, centralized and and more of a strange, disparate hive mind that ended up kind of utilizing um, the tools that people had at their disposal. The the thing about radical democracy um, within a movement or a organization 
is that it's less talked about now and and consensus politics or consensus decision making has has kind of i suppose grown to be uh the uh, quite a common replacement of hierarchical structures within activist groups but it is much slower <laughs> i suppose and there seems to have been a much uh, obviously the urgency was was a life and death situation but it does feel to me that that radical democracy approach really, 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 really does get things done, perhaps over consensus, or maybe it's not one or the other. I mean, I when looking historically, and I don't know Irish history, but looking at the United States, movements that have tried to force a homogeneity, in other words, where everyone must agree on an analysis or everyone must agree on a strategy, these have always failed. I, I really can't think of a single exception. And I think the reason is because people can only be where they're at. And it's just one of those human things that you come to in life. But, you know, people can take radical action from where from their starting point, but everyone has a different starting point. So movements that have big tent politics that really allow people to evolve and express themselves authentically from where they're at are movements that tend to have more success. Mm. One of the things um, that I mentioned there is about like the numbers and, and you, you've touched on it as well, three to 700 at a meeting or 7,000 at the biggest action. And you write at one point, um, I think it's more people, more people after all do not act to create change no matter what. Um, and as I was saying, like that, that can feel to some people like a negative statement. But do you think it's better that people just accept that and get on with the work that actually... Um, that that small group, small cohorts of radical people can actually affect much, much larger change than could be conceived as their capacity. Well, I mean, you you I said you could spend your whole life trying to change one person and fail. And one of the interesting things inside ACT UP is that women and people of color in ACT UP, it, it was a predominantly white gay male organization. But women and people of color were very significant because they tended to have more political experience than the men. They never stopped the action to insist on like consciousness raising or anything like that. What they did instead was they marshaled the resources of the larger group for their constituencies. So, for example, and I have a whole section on funding because funding in ACT UP is fascinating. There were some very elite people in ACT UP and ACT UP had an art auction. Now this is New York City, right? So very famous artists donated work and they raised $650,000. So when the women's committee was working for women with HIV and needed to, so that they needed women with HIV to be able to travel to Washington DC to testify at a hearing and stay at a hotel, we didn't have to raise the money for that. We could go to the fundraising committee and say, we need this money for this, and they would give us the money. Or when the Latino caucus realized that people with AIDS in Puerto Rico really needed support and they wanted to go to Puerto Rico and start Act Up Puerto Rico, they just went to the fundraising committee and got the money. So there was a radical sharing of this resources. And that's how people would, women and people of color would advance for their constituencies. Um, with regards to the direct action aspect of it, what do you think was like when you think back on some actions as well or, or ones that you've um, spoken to um, for, to people 
spoken to people about for this book, what types of direct actions do you think were very successful and that cut through? Well, but let me start by saying that I one of the lessons I think of the book is that your playbook has to be determined by your social position. And people in ACT UP had very different social positions. So I contrast different campaigns that were run by different constituencies, and you can see that they had different strategies. So for example, um, Larry Kramer, who's the, uh, the writer who's associated with ACT UP, he went to Yale. And he went to Yale with the president of a pharmaceutical company. So he called him. Right. And then he got a meeting or people, some of the most elite people from ACT UP, people who had gone to Harvard or who had worked for J.P. Morgan or whatever, they would, could go into a meeting with pharma. And the people that they're meeting with are pretty much like them, except that they're gay and have AIDS. But it's the same social class. And sometimes there would be a catered lunch for them when they were meeting with the other side. But when the women's committee was fighting for women with HIV, and this was at a time where there were no women in power, in any apparatus of power, even people who look like me, you know, white lesbian. There was no Rachel Maddow. There was no one in the media like me. Um, the women could not get a meeting with the government, with Fauci, for two years. And, you know, they got it by screaming and yelling at people and taking over people's offices and all that kind of thing. They couldn't just make the phone call to the guy from Yale. The, the drug users, the active and former drug users in ACT UP who were trying to get needle exchange made legal in New York, they were really on the outside of the society. And they also, they couldn't even get into experimental drug trials. Drug users were excluded. So in order to be heard, they had to illegally exchange needles in order to get arrested so that they could do the very risky strategy of having a test trial to try to win, and they did win miraculously, but they could have ended up in jail. And this is all the same organization. So really where you are positioned in relationship to power is what determines your strategy. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. One of the things as well that I think get, often gets overlooked in movements is the um, the art direction, essentially. Um, and you write about um, Grand Fury and the Silence Equals Death project. And um, oftentimes, because movements can be ephemeral, I suppose, an awful lot of the art and the aesthetic gets disregarded or um, forgotten about, especially pre-internet movements. Um, yet there was an inherent creative and artistic vibe, I suppose, to act up. And, and obviously an awful lot of artists for various reasons were involved or gravitated towards it. How important do you think having really vibrant, um, you know, visual media aspect of a movement is? Because it's something that, that we've seen in Ireland over the past like five, six years that the conservative um movements that have opposed various things around reproductive rights or marriage quality and things like that seem to really, really lack a beautiful, creative aesthetic. Well, um, art in ACT UP was essential. Now, we have to remember that, first of all, this is New York. Okay, so it's like the cutting edge of all kinds of cultural production. P very creative people moved to New York to try to be part of that. And 
it was also was a time when gay aesthetic was outside of the mainstream culture. This is before the banality of the rainbow flag and all of this. So, you know, queer artists were inventing new visual ideas for the culture. Um, so people in ACT UP came from like top, not just studio arts backgrounds, but graphic design, advertising. They had worked in media and television. They were very sophisticated, some of them, to how to convey a message. And also these images not only grabbed the media, but ACT UP never applied for funding. It wasn't a not-for-profit, it was a political movement. So it raised money initially by selling t-shirts. And the first day, I, I talk about this in the book, the first time that ACT UP went out to sell their beautifully designed t-shirts, they made $30,000 in cash because everybody wanted them. You know, so it was just all, it was um, organic. But when I was writing the history, so I have a 150 page section on art and ACT UP. And I realized at the beginning that if I only looked at like galleries or museums, I was going to get white men with one exception. There was one woman um, involved. But when I looked at nightlife and performance art, that's where I saw the work of people of color and ACT UP. So there were two really important queer nightlife spots, the Click Club, which was the first um, lesbian nightlife in New York that was run by women of color, and Meet, which was uh, run by a Latino gay man. And the, the women who ran the Click Club and the guy who ran Meet were all in ACT UP. So there was this very sexy, alive, it racially integrated nightlife that came out of ACT UP as well. And that's also part of the art of the work of, you know, also like I looked at the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus and they were doing very cool stuff. Like they were outreaching to Asian immigrants, some of whom spoke languages that safe sex materials were not translated into. And they were doing actions at Asian gay bars where you hand it, handing out condoms wrapped in lucky red Chinese New Year paper and, you know, stuff like that, um, reaching people who weren't being reached by the mainstream. So there was just a, a very, very creative, wide range of expression. Of course, you know, this book, I think, is is it's you can really tell that it's one of those books that's going to have legs, uh, you know, that that it's something that people are going to keep coming to and that it will keep going to people. And I think that, I mean, you're obviously seeing that much better up close uh, as, as the author in terms of how it's being received in the media and by readers and so on. But, and, and, and thankfully it exists because as you have uh, written about and spoken about an awful lot, um, as other people have, the depictions of this era in mainstream culture and in popular entertainment um, are often you know, if not lacking, then sometimes, you know, wholly inaccurate or offensive. Um, we did an episode a, a, towards the start of this year about um, It's a Sin, the Russell T Davies show, um, which we had a particular position on, uh, even though it was very well received. How do you reflect now? Because it's it just it seems to be even more and more that these depictions, very broad depictions of um, the AIDS crisis and the era around it keep coming. How do you feel about having the history that you were involved in represented in ways that can get a bit Ryan Murphy or something? Uh, well, 
let's start with It's a Sin. So um, what I liked about It's a Sin was how young everybody was and how incredibly exciting it was to get out of those homophobic families, how fun it was and how shocking it was when AIDS began. After that, it fell apart for me in a number of ways. And the most painful was that every person who's positive in this show dies, which is so not true and a terrible piece of information to be giving to people who are getting their first AIDS representations. So that was bizarre. And then the role of the woman who's this sacrificial martyr who's there to take care of everybody and has no life of her own was crazy. And then this horrible thing at the end about um, instead of saying that people infected other people, I mean, every person with HIV has been infected by somebody. That's part of what, you know, life. But the idea that he killed people I mean, nobody at the time ever conceptualized it that way, and certainly nobody does now. So that was really regressive. Um, Pose was funny. They, the writers, I guess, couldn't think of any political actions, so they stole some act-up actions and then watered them down. I was like, well, you should get some writers who can come up with some political actions. Um, so yeah, so it hasn't, there hasn't been anything that great yet. Um, we're trying to turn the book into a TV series. Um, the British director, Andrew Haig, if you know his work, he did a film called The Weekend, which is mm. kind of a gay classic. And uh, he also did a movie called 45 Years with Charlotte Rampling, and he did an HBO series called Looking. He is the showrunner for this idea, which has been optioned by Christine Vachon of Killer Films, who was in ACT UP. And her partner, Marlene McCarty, was the only woman in Grand Fury. So I am so lucky to have producers who are not only lesbians, but were in ACT UP. So the chances of it being accurate are higher, you know, <laughs> than if it was somebody else. And we're trying to sell it and see what happens. Um, so maybe there's a chance of getting something slightly better. We'll see. That's fantastic news. I mean, how do you, how does it? Um, I suppose a lot of the this the stuff that comes out that comes out about this area about this era is you know maybe for um, cis straight audiences or something like that. Um, has there been anything in the the mainstream pop e side of things that you feel gets things a bit more correct or authentic or doesn't? doesn't fall down the very obvious kind of tropey uh, traps. Um, and regarding AIDS representation, not really. I mean, I wrote a book called Stage Struck in yeah. the 90s, and I talk about representations of AIDS that were made by the community in the same year that the play Rent came out, which is 95. And I show how there was incredible work made all the time, but it never got elevated, you know, and it's always the same uh, really boring misrepresentation that is constantly being elevated about gay people betraying each other, gay people being alone, straight people having to rescue us, you know, all of that kind of stuff ad nauseum. Um, but maybe we're ready for a paradigm shift. I don't know. I hope so. One of the things that uh, you, you touch on as well in the book and, and um, you mentioned just like on It's a Sin there, it just kind of popped into my head with regards to the female character is this broad narrative that the lesbians were there to look after um, gay men or straight women were there to look after gay men. Yet you kind of say, well, 
actually the evidence that there was a disproportionality uh, within that caregiving role is is actually a fiction. Yeah, I mean, most gay men were taken who were taken care of by anybody were taken care of by other gay men. Right. That's I mean, the familial ad- abandonment was the norm and people's lovers died and they took care of them. I mean, although the central story in Angels in America is a man betraying his lover when he becomes positive, actually in real life, that almost never happened. You know, um, so uh, this idea of the female helper. So I look into the, you know, not only in my interviews did, did I see that taking care of people was not gendered and act up, but because the women tended to have more political experience than the younger men. The older men had been in gay liberation, but the younger men not. Women in act up were more theoreticians. That was more their role. And they brought in some very key concepts, not just patient-centered politics, but nonviolent civil disobedience training was brought in by individuals who I name, like Jamie Bauer and people like that from the Women's Peace Movement. Some of the very key uh, things that people in ACT UP use to identify themselves as ACT Uppers came from feminism. When the pandemic broke out, what correlations or differences struck you in the very, very early stages, the current pandemic we're in, the COVID pandemic, compare, compared to the HIV AIDS pandemic, if you can, if you call it that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's some similarities and there's very strong differences. I mean, I think the similarity is that every time there's a cataclysm, it reveals the inequities and it reveals the racism. It reveals the class differences in these very, very stark and brutal ways. You know, who suffers the most? That becomes clear right away. But, you know, um, the coronavirus is a collective public experience that we're all talking about on TV and at the dinner table. And AIDS was a private nightmare. We couldn't get it into the public. That was our fight, you know? So that's very, very different. Unfortunately, one of the things that has not changed is the greed of pharmaceutical companies. And we're in the same position now where we have medications that are helpful or vaccines that are helpful and the poor countries can't get them because of greed. And the rich countries are going into the booster shots now, the third vaccine shot, while other places can't even get their first one. And that's a replay of AIDS drugs and what's happened there. I want to touch a little bit on um, gentrification of the mind. Um, it is one of the best books I think that anybody can read on on gentrification and on the various intersections with regards to um, AIDS, with regards to New York and particular parts of New York. Um, we are in such an insane uh, point for urbanism, I think, right now and for what cities will look like and how they can be and how they may be exploited further by global capital or how there could be some opportunities for culture and affordability to re-enter um, places that have kind of been decimated by corporate gentrification. What, where do you stand on that? I mean, I, d- I don't know how New York has been, you know, kind of hear these different things about you know, retail rents falling and dereliction or vacancy or like rich people are just leaving and and stuff like that, you know, 2020. Um, In Dublin, for example, which has experienced really rapid um, period of relentless um, corporate gentrification that has seen the demolition of cultural venues and the development of 
really just spaces for wealthy foreign students in purpose-built student accommodation and hotels um, and apart hotels and short-term accommodation. So the city has essentially experienced a cultural collapse um, over the past year and a half. Where do you, with your kind of city hat on and gentrification hat on, can you conceive of what the impact of the of this moment might be on urban centers? Well, the, the one thing that I can't account for is climate change, right, which is affecting cities. And I don't have a fix for that. But, you know, New York City could be fixed easily. It's a matter of political will. If we had 500,000 reasonably accessible housing units built. I mean, because what happened in New York, as I go into it in my book, is that they stopped building low income housing. Uh, so if we we have an, America has a terrible housing crisis, we need to build housing. If we build housing that was reasonable and we build infrastructure with it, that's to say hospitals, public schools, mass transit, um, and it can be, it could be done, then we can save our city. Right now we need to expand rent control. We need to build low income housing. We need commercial rent control. We need people to be fined for keeping spaces empty. We need to restrict franchises and chains because neighborhoods need to be discreet and to be expressions of the people who live in the neighborhoods and businesses need to reflect that. What's interesting here right now is that we're in chaos because of COVID. And so there's a lot of empty storefronts and no chains are opening right now. So anyone who's opening a business is opening an independent business and the city could facilitate that. These spaces, this could be a cult. This is a time when we have enough empty space to have a cultural renaissance in the city if we could facilitate the access to that space. But instead it's being kept empty. We have a new mayor who I'm not excited about. Um, so I, I don't know if he's going to be able to make any changes there. Um, but but yes, and we have also have the big infrastructure bill that they're trying to get through, uh, Biden's infrastructure bill. But I don't know how that's going to affect urban housing. But these are fixable concrete problems and it's all about money. Yeah, and they're the same. Um, the things that you're mentioning can be ascribed to so many cities around the world. I find it very frustrating how the fixes, the, the problems are the same and the fixes are the same. And there's such an obviousness to it. I'm, I've been trying to figure out how do you navigate the block and resistance from the capital, from the money in the political sphere um, and, and what the solution is there because people have, have the answers. Um, yes, there's an impasse and I've just, it's something that I'm str struggling with and have been struggling with over the past few years. There's only so many times you can keep saying the same thing and, and offering, if not solutions, then ideas. How do we penetrate that obstacle? It seems like an impossibility sometimes. Well, you know, cities are growing. Our new, new census in New York shows 8.8 .8 million people. It's the largest it's ever been. We've added 600,000 people to New York City. Um, and the profit margins of the 1% are growing. And that's where the problem is. You know, the differences between 
the, the vast majority of people and how they're living and the incredible, insatiable, phenomenal greed of a handful of people. Uh, the only thing that has really changed that's of interest to me is that we now have some radical people in the U.S. government. You know, there are a couple of these younger people of color in Congress who are the kinds of people who never would have been in Congress when I was young. They would have been the leaders of the most marginalized left-wing movements. And they're there and they have great voice and their politics is fantastic. They don't have power, but they are um, a caucus within the Democratic Party. And so for the first time, I find myself interested in electoral politics and supporting candidates who actually win and things like that. And you know, as, as America becomes less and less white, and of course, we don't know what that means because it's unclear how Asian and Latino voters are going to vote, if they're going to be progressive voters or not. But we do know that Black voters, especially Black women voters, are the most progressive voters in the country. And that's why Republicans want to keep them from being able to vote. And voter suppression is the, the huge factor right now. But it, it makes us look in a different way. You know, because it's one thing trying to influence government from the grassroots, which is what we've always had to do. But now there is a kind of cooperation between some members of the government and grassroots. And that's new for us. Mm. A lot of people um, in, in Europe, I think, tuned out of America when Biden won the election. It's like you could kind of step away from the noise for a moment and just not be as as tuned in. I mean, I'm kind of speaking for myself here now because it, it was just too much um, <laughs> even from afar. So obviously that's a ridiculous thing to say to a, an American um, who, who experienced it all most, much more intensely. But I'm, I think I remember one of the last times we were talking and you were talking about like the cycles um, or the social cycles of American history, um, maybe 40 year cycles or something like that. Like what cycle do you think your country is in now philosophically or i call it the rise of the confederacy where we have these you know these what trump revealed to me anyway is that people who i thought were very fringe are actually very mainstream and that there's a large number of people who are crazy who are religious fanatics who are very violent who are racist at a level that it controls their daily lives. And they have uh, quite a bit of power, amazingly. You know, it's just, I was naive. Um, and now we're dealing with them. And I, where I teach is in the most right-wing section of New York City, Staten Island. And we just had a demonstration at Staten Island Hospital of nurses and hospital workers who don't want to be vaccinated. That's how insane people are. So there's there's a real delusional swath through this country that is growing. So that doesn't sound very positive then. No, but we have to beat them. We certainly can't recruit them. And then there's these amazing organizers like Stacey Abrams in Georgia and you know people who have used grassroots uh, sweat to beat these people. Uh, you know, and just take them on. And that seems to be where we're at right now politically. Yeah, I think there's a, a, a major challenge emerging, you know, and, and obviously the Internet and technology and flawed and failing education systems have a large part to play with this, where previously the ideological battles were rooted in some kind of grounded 
philosophy or worldview or um, facts, whereas the shift to that the ideological opponents to good stuff is total delusion and insanity and um, things that are completely made up presents a much, much more complex problem, perhaps. Well, it's, re- it's religious. You know, it's this fundamentalist American religious style combined with white supremacy. It's always been there and it's wearing its ugly head. Um, before you go, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? Oh, my God, I'm working on so much. Um, I have a new novel. I have to say, unfortunately, the success of the book about ACT UP has not translated to lesbian novels. <laughs> It's amazing what happens when you write about men, you know, (laughs) a lot of doors open, but then you're like, hi, here's my lesbian novel. And they're like, no. So I've been having a hard time with that, trying to get that book out. And I'm writing another book as well. And then, um, you know, working on a bunch of film things. I'm, I'm doing a feature film about the life of Carson McCullers, one of my favorite writers and a million other projects and also stage projects. Although the theater looks like, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but. Can you, can you give any insight as to how, like I'm sure writers listening to this will, will kind of want to know the how behind um, how prolific you are. I have no idea. I think it's neurological. I'm just telling you the truth. It's just, it's very easy for me and I like doing it. You know, I was once I was watching the jazz pianist Jerry Allen before she passed away. I went to see her at the Village Vanguard and she's playing piano improv. You know, there's no music. She's just sitting there. And I thought that's kind of what I do. I sort of sit at the keyboard and I go like this with my fingers and things come out. And that's kind of how it is. And I can't explain it. Well, uh, the great pianist, Sarah Shulman. <laughs> the great the great uh, keyboard keyboard pianist. Um Thank you so much for for taking the time out uh, of your obviously uh, very incessantly busy working day to talk to us um, on Byline. Really appreciate it and hopefully see you in Ireland soon. Yes, thank you so much. (laughs) 